Welcome back, everyone. This is episode number 12 of Hot Takes Only, presented by the Hot Takes Network. It's been an exciting week in sports, and we look forward to talking basketball and football on this episode. But first things first, if you haven't listened to episode number 10, please make sure you check it out as I got the opportunity to sit down with Toronto Blue Jays radio legend Jerry Howarth to discuss his career in baseball and with the Jays. The interview is at the end of episode number 10, so please go check it out if you haven't done so already. In regards to this episode, later in the episode, I'm going to be joined by HTN's newest member, Matthew Watson, to recap the NFL draft. We answer questions such as the draft's biggest reach, the best value picks, and much, much more. It's really an awesome conversation. You don't want to miss it. If you haven't checked out Matthew's blog on the website, please be sure to do so as it's really great football analysis. All of our blogs and podcasts can be accessed through www.hottakesnetwork.com. Before we get into the football talk, I want to talk a little basketball as we're right into the heart of the NBA playoffs. After winning game one, 108-95, the Toronto Raptors came out Monday night in game number two and dropped a heartbreaker to the Philadelphia 76ers, 94-89. I look at this game and, and honestly, for the first time in a really long time as a Raptors fan, I'm not overly concerned after a playoff loss. Usually we we get in the, in this panic because, you know, there are adjustments that have to be made and, and we're not really sure if this team can get over the hump. I'm actually really confident looking at, at the series ahead. I, I thought we were going to handle the 76ers in five games when we originally started uh, this series. I, I saw us winning both games at home and then, then winning one in Philadelphia, coming back home and winning game five at home to close out the series. Unfortunately, it hasn't gone that way. But well, what excites me about this Raptors team, and I think we saw it against the Orlando Magic a little bit, is they got down, they lost game one, they really didn't play that well, and then they came out and they absolutely dominated the rest of the four games in the series. There was never really any doubt about who was going to win the series. And I sort of feel like we're in the same boat right now with these Philadelphia 76ers. Because if you watch game two, honestly, the Raptors pretty much could not have played a worse first half than they did. They they get down really early on and, and give themselves quite a mountain to climb, but they turn things around, come out with a better second half, and they do turn them out and turn uh, turn it around and, and almost even get over the hump. And, and they had a chance to tie at the end of the game. Uh, Danny Green, unfortunately, missed an open three that likely would have sent the game to overtime. But what I like about this group is, is the mental resiliency that they were able to show coming back, not getting down on themselves, maybe like some other past Raptors teams would have done, and fighting back, giving themselves a chance in a game they really had no business being a part of, given how poorly they played in the first half. So what excites me is, is the fact that they really should have been in overtime if Danny Green makes that three-pointer at the end of uh, at the end of the game and and they really played really horribly. So so that sort of gives me promise that I don't think the Raptors can play much worse than they did and they still almost won game 2. It's almost a little bit similar to game 1 of the uh, the Orlando series when they I don't I don't really think they could have played much worse than they did given the quality and and the, the players that are on the roster and they still almost snuck it out. It took a, a miracle performance from DJ Augustine to get the magic that win and I I sort of see the same similarities within uh, within this series here. I just want to touch on some some notes that I that I've taken away from the series thus far. The first one being on the Raptors side, I truly don't believe 
that there's any room for Fred Van Vliet in this series. And I'm a huge Fred Van Vliet guy. I really like the way he plays basketball. He's tough. He's gritty. But I just don't think that he matches up well with any of the uh, the 76ers. I, I think he's just too tiny to be able to, even though he's a physical player, I think he's too tiny to to really be able to handle a lot of these 76ers that, that kind of almost play out of position based on their size. I look at a guy like Ben Simmons who can be listed as a point guard, which is, which is crazy given his size. Fred Van Vliet just can't really match up against the athleticism that the 76ers bring. And I think we're sort of starting to see it within the uh, within the series. I don't think he's had a fantastic series. I don't think he's been good. Uh, I think he's been mediocre at best and, and sometimes an absolute liability on the court thus far. I, again, I really like Fred Van Vliet. I love the hustle and, and the grit he brings to the team. At the end of the day, I think against an athletic team like the 76ers, I don't think hustle and grit is enough. I think you need physical attributes to combat their size and their athleticism. And I just don't think that there's any place for Van Vliet in this series. Yes, he's going to continue getting minutes. This isn't to say that he that Nick Nurse is just going to wipe him off the face of the earth. Although, to be honest, it, it, it's not a bad idea to, to limit him to very, very few minutes, I think. But I think the key for Nick Nurse here needs to be that he needs to make sure that he's matching Fred Van Vliet up against the 76ers bench. I don't think Van Vliet is going to have any success against the athleticism of the starting five. And we're sort of seeing Fred Van Vliet become that sixth man against the uh, against the 76ers starters. So he comes in for one of the Raptors starters and plays against the starting unit of the 76ers. And I just don't think that's a recipe for success given his diminutive stature and he, I wouldn't say he's the most athletic person in the world. And, and that, that's not going to take you very far against, as I've said, a, uh, a crazy athletic team in the 76ers. So I don't really think there's a place for Van Vliet in this series to play a prominent role. There's definitely still a spot for him matching up against bench unit players. But I don't like the way that Nick Nurse has, has handled his minutes thus far. I think you've got to look somewhere else in order to get your, your sixth man. Who that is, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's Norman Powell. He's the first one off the bench, just given his athleticism and his ability to, to defend multiple positions. Maybe even go Serge Ibaka and try to go try to go big off the bat, even if uh, even if it means having to take uh, two centers on at the at the same time in in Gasol and Ibaka. But I just don't think that it can be uh, can be Fred Van Vliet first off the bench. I just don't think that's a good matchup for the uh, the Raptors. And that sort of transitions into my, my second point about Nick Nurse thus far. I don't think he's doing a very good job of, of managing minutes in terms of how we're matching up against the Sixers starters versus their bench players. And, and the Sixers have an interesting uh, decision when it comes to their, their, um, uh, their starters versus their bench minutes. And it's sort of been interesting to see how Nick Nurse hasn't really hasn't really adapted to that a whole lot. So for those of you that are unfamiliar, Philadelphia uh, has been known throughout the season to start their starting five or, or key components of that starting five, at least at the beginning of the second quarter and the fourth quarter, which is generally not what most teams do. Most teams will play their starters pretty much throughout the entire first quarter, starting to wane off on them near the end and then let a bench unit roll through, let's say the last three minutes and then the first couple minutes of, of the second quarter 
and the fourth quarter there. Philadelphia doesn't do that. They tend to get their starters out fairly early, bring the bench unit in, and then start the second and fourth quarters with their starting unit intact, if not all of them, at least four of the five guys. And I don't think Nick Nurse has done a great job of adjusting to that thus far. I think if you look at some of the rotations he's playing, I don't know that our bench is really capable of, of matching up well with the with the 76ers starting five. And I think that's where we've been hurt the most this series, where Nick Nurse ha- has le- left our, our, our bench unit out there at the beginning of these quarters with maybe one starter or two starter, two starters. But I don't think that it's enough to really gain an advantage uh, that's worth it later on. One of the stats that was very, very telling to me was that if you look at game, uh, if you look at both games, there were a lot of pluses in terms of plus minus uh, from both team starters. So I think in game two specifically, JJ Redick was the only starter on either team to post a negative plus minus. And what this tells me is that the Raptors are getting their own against the uh, against the 76ers starters. If you look at you know the plus minuses, I, I think every Raptor starter in game one and game two has at least been even in terms of plus minus. So has at least been a zero. So that shows me that the starters are, are performing well against the 76ers starters. The fact that the 76ers starters were able to turn even those negatives against the Raptors starters into positives show me that they were matching up so well against the Raptors bench that they were just riding off, off the positives of that in order to get their plus minus into the positive range. So this tells me that the 76ers starters are absolutely getting their way against the Raptors bench. And, and you don't even have to really watch the game to be able to, uh, to figure that out from a statistical analysis perspective. I myself have watched both games, and I it's very easy to see that. The Raptors bench is outmatched athletically as well as skill-wise against the 76ers starters. So I would like to see Nick Nurse try to match up minutes more so like the 76ers do and try to get those matchups where we're playing our starters against the 76ers starters because I do think we're achieving a lot of great success doing that. And I think it's been uh, been a, something that we want to continue uh, to do. And I, I think ultimately, if we're able to make this adjustment, I don't see the series really being in question in uh, in our favor. I, I, I think that, that we're getting our way against the 76ers starters when our starters do play. And I, I think that's our recipe for success. So Nick Nurse, I think while, while our rotations have worked really well all season against other teams, the 76ers are a special breed just because they're so athletic and so different. And I think we need to more so play toward towards them and taking away their strengths versus uh, trying to implement our own. So trying to trying to turn their strengths into weaknesses instead of trying to trying to overpower them with our strengths. So that, that's another thing that I think Nick Nurse needs to do. Sort of tying off that point, um, we need to make sure that Gasol plays against Joel Embiid every single minute that he's on the court. And, and I think this has been another mistake that Nick Nurse has made. Uh, and again, this is not me harping on Nick Nurse. I think he's a fantastic coach. I think he's going to adjust well. This is just what I've noticed over the first two games. Basketball is all about making adjustments. And I think the Raptors have the ability to to make these adjustments. And Nick Nurse, as a coach, I think is, is strong uh, enough to do 
to make these adjustments. So, so this is not me harping on Nick Nurse at all. This is just uh, something that, that I think he, he's going to do moving forward in games three and beyond. But yes, Marcus Saul needs to play against Joel Embiid every single time out there. Joel Embiid is not healthy. He's not at 100%, so he's not going to be playing the big minutes. that, or He's not going to be logging the big minutes that he has in, uh, in series and, and regular seasons past. So I believe this is an opportunity if Nick Nurse doesn't want to be playing Marcus Saul for extended minutes in a game. I think this is a perfect opportunity for him to match Marcus Saul versus Joel Embiid minute by minute if Joel Embiid is not going to play the large uh, chunk of minutes that that he he might be able to if he was 100%. We all know about Marcus Saul's stellar defense against Embiid. It, it's really unmatched. And if you look at even the small sample size of this series, if you look at when Embiid is being guarded by Gasol versus when he's being guarded by Serge Ibaka, it's a no-brainer that you want Gasol on Embiid throughout the uh, throughout the remainder of, of the series and any minutes he can. So that that's one change that I would like to see Nick Nurse implement. And I think that sort of comes with matching the starters of the Raptors against the starters of the 76ers. I think that naturally flows in there. But if you don't want to do the 100% change, I think that's where you have to start. I think you have to start with Gasol matching up against Embiid every single time out on the uh, on the on the floor. Switching over to the 76ers side, I was actually really impressed in game two by the adjustments that Brett Brown made. And and I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a Brett Brown guy. I actually don't think he's a very good coach. I think he's he's very he's, he's just sort of strange and impulsive, and, and I don't like the rotations that, that he's used. I, I do like the fact that he's trying something new in this uh, start your starters at the beginning of, of the second and the fourth quarter. I just don't really like him as a coach. I, I don't I don't overly respect what he's doing uh, with the 76ers. I, I think they're as crazy as it is. They, they're almost underachieving uh, with all the talent that they have on the roster, but that's a discussion for another time. Uh, I was impressed with his game two performance. I, I think that they came to the conclusion that they were just going to let Marcus Gasol beat them and, 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 you know, take, uh, take everyone else off the court, take Kawhi Leonard, try to try to, manage him as much as they could, take Siakam, try to manage him as much as they could. And, and basically, they, they came to the conclusion that they wanted Marcus Gasol to beat them if anyone was going to, and Marcus Gasol was not able to do that. If you watch the 76ers' defense, the Raptors were trying to get into the lane a lot. Kawhi Leonard was trying to get to the basket, Pascal Siakam the same way, and, and the 76ers' defense essentially collapsed around the ball handler, and this was sort of led by Joel Embiid, or whoever was guarding Marcus Gasol being the primary help defender and leaving Marcus Gasol sort of open on the wings, maybe after he set a pick in a, in a pick and roll position, uh, basically inviting Marcus Gasol to take these open three pointers. And he took a couple, passed up a couple. Uh, the ones that he did take, a lot of them did not end up falling. Uh, I, th- I think the 76ers did a really, really good job of, of, sort of game planning around that. And and at the end of the day, with such a talented Raptors roster, you're going to pretty much need to decide who you want to beat you in that game. In game one, they didn't really make that adjustment and they just sort of let Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam run free. But if you look at Marcus Gasol in, in game two, he shot one for six from the field, 
one for four from three-point range. So I think the 76ers did exactly what they wanted to, let Marcus all beat you, and, and at the end of the day, he didn't. So I will give uh, Brett Brown props on that one. I do think that he did a great job in game two of managing the game as well as making the correct adjustments from a game one that really was not as close as the uh, the score indicated at the end. I think uh, it ended up being a 13-point spread, but they really got outplayed and, and truly outcoached by Nick Nurse. I thought it was reversed in game two. The 76ers outplayed the Raptors, and uh, Brett Brown outcoached Nick Nurse. So game three goes tomorrow night, uh, Thursday, in Philadelphia. I'm not 100% sure what time first tip is, but it's going to be a really interesting game to see how Nick Nurse is able to sort of adjust to these changes that Brett Brown has made and if he's willing to to match those starter minutes given the success that the Raptors starters have had against the 76ers starters. It, it, it'll be a fascinating way to sort of see how Nick Nurse has evolved as a coach this year. Uh, we haven't really seen him get into a, a lot of trouble. Uh, the Raptors relatively coasted through the, uh, the regular season. And, and I think that uh, his biggest issue was really trying to manage Kawhi Leonard and, and some of the injuries the Raptors had. And then even if you look at the, the Magic series, when they lost game one, the Raptors were the better team. They were the more talented team. And, and it really took a miracle effort from DJ Augustine in order to win game one for the Magic. So I don't think there was a ton of adjustments to be made there. I think Nick Nurse made the adjustments that he could have. I, I really like the trapping on the pick and roll that he ended up doing. So, so there were good adjustments that he did make. But this is sort of the first real bit of adversity that Nick Nurse is facing in his, in his head coaching career. So it'll be interesting to see how the Raptors come out in game three because we have seen Dwayne Casey in the past be incredibly stubborn about certain things related to the Raptors, especially you know defensive end. Uh, not really making the correct adjustments. And, and offensively, we all know what uh, what a mess the offense was for years and years and not making correct adjustments come playoff time. So it'll be interesting to see if Nick Nurse is able to turn the corner and, and make these adjustments that, that I feel are necessary or that the team feels are necessary. The uh, the last point that I want to bring up that, that I'm not really sure if there's an adjustment to be made in terms of this, but the one thing that concerns me is how heavily the Raptors are getting out-rebounded so far in the series. And I think it's just a, it's more of a, a props to the uh, 76ers and, and their athleticism and, and their length and their size. But the Raptors are going to have to figure out some way to try to, to bridge this rebounding gap. So far in the series, the Raptors are getting out-rebounded over the course of two games, uh, 99 to 76. And, and that's not a number you... You really like to see that you're going to give up a lot of of extra points and extra possessions through that number, and and it's something that the Raptors are going to need to to figure out a way to uh, bridge that that gap and try to make it a little tighter, because I, I just don't think that that it's a recipe for success when the 76ers you're getting what they want, they're missing shots, but then they're cleaning up on the offensive boards and getting easier shots because of that. It's uh, it's really the only area that I'm concerned for the Raptors. Uh, I, I think there are other adjustments that can be made that, that will nullify some of the successes that the 76ers have had. But that's one area that, that I think the 76ers just have an, an innate advantage over the Raptors within. So 
it'll be interesting to see if Nick Nurse can can uh, you know bring something on the defensive floor to improve the rebounding. Maybe it is going with Ibaka and Gasol at the same time, although that might create uh, spreading nightmares or spread nightmares on on the offensive end. But something needs to be done in terms of the rebounding. I just don't know what it is. Um, Maybe it's a case of uh, you even just let the 76ers try to shoot threes, apart from J.J. Redick, because I don't like giving J.J. Redick three-pointers. And sort of say, hey, beat us from uh, from three point range, and and we're going to collapse defensively and and try to get on the boards. So it, it'll be interesting to see so far because the defense has been very very solid. Uh, they they've held the 76ers under uh, ninety five points in both games that, that have been played in the series, which which is great for an athletic team like the 76ers. But something needs to uh, something needs to happen on on the boards because you know at the end of the day if you're going to keep giving up these offensive rebounds and, and extra possessions eventually that point total for the other team is is going to go up. So those are sort of my thoughts on the uh, the Raptors series uh, game. As I said before, game three goes tomorrow night, Thursday night. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Nick Nurse is able to if he's able to make these adjustments that are going to be required in order to uh, to bring. The Raptors back into this uh, this series and give them the upper hand. The 76ers obviously do have home court advantage now. It's turned into a best of five. So hopefully the Raptors can take one or, or even two in uh, in Philadelphia. I think it's going to be absolutely electric in there. I, the Philadelphia fans are, are really, uh, really knowledgeable basketball fans and, and they're passionate about their team. So it's going to be a hostile place to go in and play. But I do think the Raptors can get it done. I think the Raptors are probably going to win this thing in six. I think they're probably going to go in to Philadelphia and, and get the job done. I think these guys are killers and closers, and I, I think they have no fear about playing on the road. So I'm going Raptors in six from here on out. I, I think Nick Nurse can make those adjustments. So those are my Raptors thoughts. I hope you you liked them. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. Uh, it has been good basketball to watch apart from the first half of game two from the Raptors. But I, I, I really enjoy watching two athletic teams like this go at it. And the Eastern Conference is right for the taking this year. It, it's exciting to not really know what's going to happen and, and not to have these these eventual outcomes that, uh, that we sort of have known in the past. So I'm super excited to continue watching the series. Those are my Raptors thoughts. Hope you enjoyed them. Now I'm going to flip it over to my conversation with Matthew Watson HDN's newest member. We are recapping the NFL draft from last week. So hope you enjoy that. Thanks for tuning in. After Saturday's conclusion of the seventh round, the 2019 NFL draft is in our rear view mirror and the time for analysis starts now. With that in mind, who better to bring on than HTN's newest contributor, and football guru Matthew Watson to break down the good and the bad from the draft. First things first, welcome to the team, Matthew. How's it going, man? Thanks, Ben. Uh, I'm really excited to join HTN here. Uh, Big sports fan, ready to talk some baseball, some hockey, but of course, my number one love, which is NFL football. What a draft. What a draft. It was a pretty crazy night. It, it started off, you know, uh, not necessarily like I thought it would. I thought we were going to get a whole bunch of uh, trades early on. 
and uh, some teams trying to move down, teams trying to move up to position themselves for uh, for maybe even some quarterbacks or some other players. We had to wait until pick number ten for our first tra- for our first trade with the uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers moving up to take Devin Bush. Uh, the number one pick we've sort of known for a little while now. Kyler Murray did go number one, the quarterback out of Oklahoma. Second straight year, a quarterback out of Oklahoma has been taken number one. He went to the Arizona Cardinals and new head coach Cliff Kingsbury. Lots of great defensive players were taken early on. Picks two through five were defensive players. Lots of studs out there. Nick Bosa, Quinn and Williams, Clellan Farrell, which, you know, maybe Matthew and I will get to in a bit, perhaps. And then Devin White, (laughs) the linebacker out of LSU. Watson, it, it was a fantastic uh, draft, in my opinion. I really liked watching the, uh, the whole thing and following along. I'm going to start with the, uh, the negative with you. We're, we're going to sort of talk about some, some different players and picks we like, but I'm going to start negative. Who did you think was the biggest reach in round number one? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the biggest reach is a little interesting. I'm going to purposely pass on Daniel Jones right now. <laughs> just because I'm sure we can have a whole separate conversation about that. Um, But I'm actually going to go with the Atlanta Falcons pick in the first round, which I believe was Chris Lindstrom at 14. He's an offensive guard uh, out of Boston College. And I mean, you know, the Falcons had a little bit of a questionable offensive line last year, and they obviously want to protect franchise QB Matt Ryan. But to me, Again, the whole thing with the draft is you you got to pay attention to value. And to me, if the value's not there at the point in time, unless you're anticipating somebody behind you drafting the player that you want, you trade down, you collect more draft capital, and then you pick the player that you wanted later. Um, most of the mock drafts and things like that that I've seen had Chris Lidstrom as a mid-second round pick. And yes, he's a very versatile offensive lineman. You can see him play a whole bunch of positions. Um, He's very technically sound. But to me, he was not the pick that you make at 14. And for the Falcons, if protecting Matt Ryan is such a priority, why don't you trade back later into the first round, collect more draft capital, and then that way take a couple of quality offensive linemen? So to me, that was one reach. And then the other reach um, was also an offensive lineman. Uh, taken 23rd, Titus Howard um, by Houston Texans out of uh, Alabama State. And the reason why I'm kind of <laughs> questioning this is because the Texans got a little snake there by Philly, eh, Benny? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that was, is a complete panic pick there. I, I think Philly moves up, trades with Baltimore to get that 22nd pick, uh, takes yep. the offensive tackle, Andre Dillard out of Washington State, who had been climbing up draft boards throughout the, the week even. I, I wouldn't even say the month prior to, he just sort of seemed to slide in there. Uh, yeah. And I think the Texans have needed to try to find that that help in protecting Deshaun Watson and expected Dillard to just sort of fall into their, their lap, uh, maybe passing by Baltimore. But Baltimore goes out and makes this trade with Philadelphia. Philadelphia sl- snags uh, Dillard. And yeah. I, I think probably all hell breaks loose in the uh, the Texans <laughs> trying to find an offensive tackle. And, and honestly, yeah, and you know, I'm just I just picturing there. Sorry, what was that? No, no yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, uh, I, I, no, you're right. No, I was just I was just going to jump in there really quickly and just comment on that war room thing. You got to figure, you know, you're sitting there as the Texans, you're all geared up. 
you've probably called Dillard by this point, right? You're like, hey, you might get drafted soon. And then all of a sudden, Philly comes out of nowhere and takes him. And then the Texans are left there wondering, like you said, total panic. What do we do? And I think there was other offensive tackles that were better left on the board. But um, I think Titus Howard was the only, you know, kind of potential left tackle for them. And as you know, they've had a lot of problems at left tackle. It, it, it was definitely interesting to see some of the names that were still out there. Uh, Jawan Taylor obviously fell into the second round. Greg Little, Cody yep. Ford as well. Do any of those guys really project as, as that left tackle help that is needed? Maybe not. And, and Jawan Taylor has had some some you know off or uh, some injury troubles, and and a lot of teams were were sort of turned off by him. So you know, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where. Uh, if your guy doesn't fall to you, I, I think if you're going to panic, panic and take someone like Jawan Taylor in that situation or, or Greg Little out of Old Miss or Cody Ford out yeah. of Oklahoma. I really like Cody Ford to the Bills. Maybe that, that's that's a discussion uh, for uh, for some other time, but I, I like the way he plays football. Uh, but, yeah, I, for sure. I really like your picks. I think that, uh, that, that Lindstrom, you know, has the ability to, to become – the next uh, uh, Quentin Nelson, uh, the uh, Colts <laughs> player, uh, or the Colts yeah. guard that was drafted last year. I, I think he has sort of sort of started a trend of guards maybe being valued higher than they have been in the past just because of the success of the Indianapolis Colts offensive line so far uh, in the 2018 season. So I, I don't actually mind the, the Lindstrom pick if you like that player, but I agree with you. I think you have to trade back. Uh, accumulate some more picks if you want to address the offensive line. I think there were there was an ability to you know gain another pick and and do so. Uh, but Lindstrom, I think, is a solid player. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I'm just not sure about the uh, the Howard selection. Anyone who plays at Alabama State, you know, I will uh, we'll <laughs> out, of the, out of the SPAC conference. But we will uh, we will see. But I I, I I like those two selections. I'm actually going to go a little higher up the board. Uh, Clellan Farrell, number four to the uh, Oakland Raiders. I actually thought that he was a perfect fit for my Miami Dolphins at 13. Even then, I mm-hmm. thought that might be a bit of a uh, bit of a reach. To be honest, um, I'm really happy that that his teammate uh, Christian Wilkins fell into our uh, our lap. But Farrell at four, that that just seems like a lot. Uh, a lot of uh, eggs to throw in one basket there. You probably could have traded back. Whether or not someone was willing to trade up with you is, is another story, but seems like a, uh, a real reach in my opinion. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, I'm just going to say one thing in the defense of Farrell, um, which is that I think the Raiders, again, I totally agree with you. I think they should have traded back. Four is way too high for a guy like Farrell. Like, I'm looking at, you know, ESPN right now. They've got ranked 21st. Um, But to me, the yeah, I know, right? But the only thing to me that kind of – there was a little bit of a trend going on with the Raiders in the first round, which was they were looking for character guys who can win championships. You look at Claylon Farrell out of Clemson. You look at Josh Jacobs out of Alabama, both championship uh, title game players – and Farrell was the captain of a very, very good Clemson defensive line. So while I totally agree that it was such a reach, it was almost ridiculous, I'm kind of wondering if John Gruden's entire philosophy here 
is looking at how do we get the best character guys to build some character on a defense that after Khalil Mack left last year really lost its identity. Yeah, for sure. It, it's definitely someone. And again, I like Farrell as a player. I, I think that he's really strong and, and has that leadership ability for just seems really high to me. But, you know, that, yeah, that, that's a beauty of sure. the draft. We'll never know until these guys step out onto the field. Uh, second yeah. question for you, Matthew. We're going to go the opposite here in, uh, here in round one. Give me your best round one value pick. Oh, sign me up for Ed Oliver. Oh, my goodness. How did he fall to nine? I can't believe it. You know what? I, I'm, I'm just looking here at, at Buffalo. You know, they just had a legend, a legend from the Buffalo Bills, Kyle Williams, hang up the cleats last year. And, you know, they're going to put in Ed Oliver, and he's going to slide right into that spot. Um, and I know a lot of people had Ed Oliver super high at the beginning of the year. Then he tended to drop and then came up the draft boards again right near the tail end. Um, and I just think he's a great player. He got kind of played out of position at Houston a little bit. Um, and I, I think you can speak to this a little more than I can, Ben, because you tend to follow the college game a little more. But I think he was used a little bit too much as, a, as more of a nose tackle than a three technique. But um, I could see him lining up. He certainly used out of position and, and – Houston, I, I even admitted that when uh, when they when they were playing, like it, it's one of those things where they needed to fill a, a hole on the squad, and, and yeah. Oliver was willing to to make the change. Uh, but this guy, this guy is a true defensive tackle. Uh, I really yeah. like him. Him sort of playing and, and wreaking havoc in the middle. <laughs> so we will uh, we will see what what happens. Uh, if I, I have to imagine Buffalo plays him in, in the right position. Like, I don't know why, why you would draft him and, and try to misuse him because, because he is an absolute physical specimen. So I, I really yeah. enjoy him as the ninth pick. I think uh, you get a lot of good value there for sure. I think he's probably a top five player. Some people at, at last year's draft projected him to be the number one overall pick this year. So definitely great yeah. value for the, uh, the bills here. And I mean, also just the fact that they signed uh as a star with Tulele, so to have him play the middle, kind of the nose spot, and then have Ed shift around on either side, yeah, that's going to be really good. The only other player I was going to say to me, um, and this was a whole a whole deal, and I mean, we could go on about this for a little bit, but the Montez Sweat pick at 26, given the whole issue where there was a heart issue, then there wasn't a heart issue, and whatever happens there, all I got to say on that, Ben, is that if there is not a heart issue, that is a hell of a value at 26. Could agree more. I think the Washington team did a really, really solid job of, of drafting. Uh, you know, they wait on Dwayne Haskins. They, they identified him as their guy. And a lot of people thought they were going to have to trade up uh, in order to get him. He ends up falling right yeah. into their lap. No trades required. And then you follow that up by moving back into the first round, trading with Indianapolis to get Sweat, who, like you sort of said, is is probably a top ten talent, apart from For sure. this heart condition or this heart condition that we're not sure actually exists. So that's a really strong <laughs> draft class, in in my opinion. If you can if you can start your draft off by that on day one. Uh, so I, I really like yeah. the sweat pick for sure. I'm gonna go with uh, another Another defensive lineman that, that had some, some off-field issues, 
so to speak. Uh, Jeffrey Simmons out of Mississippi State. Um, yep, love it. Will recognize that name uh, given the video ESPN decided to show after he was drafted. Um, yeah. Definitely has a has a checkered pass for sure, but all signs point to him. Uh, you know, trying to wrong uh, or trying to right that wrong throughout his college career at Mississippi State wreaks havoc uh, in in backfields and on the line. I know as, as a, a fan of SEC football, I really enjoyed watching him play. And I think at 19 of the Tennessee Titans, a team that needed defensive line help, I think that that's great value for sure. Because he, he probably would have been a top five pick if, if all this off-field uh, issue, if all these off-field issues sort of hadn't come to fruition. And from, all, from everything that I've heard, it sounds like he's, he's done a great job of trying to learn from his mistakes and, and grow as a person. And if he's able to do that, I really like this pick at 19. Yeah, and I mean, any, anybody, uh, any draft analyst who has chatted with the coaches at Mississippi State, they've all come back and said that he's such a quality player and he's really, um, you know, done good work in the community with the Mississippi State um, College and things like that. And he's really clearly trying to get back on uh, on the path of the straight and narrow, shall we say. So, um, yeah, huge fan of the pick. Uh, also, the fact that Tennessee took him even though he tore his ACL, but with the anticipation that they can challenge for a playoff spot with his ability to come back uh, later in the season and make an impact towards the back half, I think that's going to be key for them. For sure. And, and the ACL is definitely uh, definitely a tough one. Uh, I, I just like this pick, you know, I, I, I don't like the fact that you draft for one year, you know, if, if someone's yeah. hurt, uh, then, and, but is a good player. I think you have to have to take the hit for one year, try as best you can to rehab them. And, and hopefully that they get back to, to the player that they were before. A great example that I like to think of with that is as OG Ananobi on the Toronto Raptors. Mm-hmm. I know we're changing sports a little bit here. But had he not gotten hurt in his draft year, he was probably at least a top 10 pick, maybe even a top five pick out of Indiana. The Raptors snagged him mm-hmm. uh, in the 20s. And, and he's been a, been a great contributor for them ever since. So, so I don't like drafting for, for just one year. I think this is really great value for Simmons, even with the off-field uh, incident and, and the injury. I, I really like this value for Tennessee. Yeah, uh, speaking of first year and making an impact, Ben, if you had to pick one intriguing prospect that you think could make a significant impact in their first year, who do you think that would be? Uh, so, so I think that there are a lot of a lot of players near the top of the draft. So you look at a Bosa, a Williams, and, and a White, like, like and a Josh Allen that sort of step in. Those those are top top seven picks right there. I really like uh, Jonah Williams out of Alabama. I think he comes in, uh, really helps an offensive line that needs to protect the quarterback better. I think that that he can be a day one starter. I do believe that he is an offensive tackle. I don't think that that his arms are too small or whatever. I'm an Alabama fan, so I watched him grow throughout his career. And, And that guy can straight up play football. So I really like Jonah Williams there for sure. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I thought that Jonah Williams uh, pick at 11 there was absolutely brilliant. Uh, the other guy that I'm kind of sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm very curious as to how they're going to use him is TJ Hawkinson uh, with the Detroit Lions. Because for me, you know, the Lions are still trying to shake, shake the, um, the, the demons of round one tight ends. 
a little bit there. Um, but I think that TJ Hawkinson is a target that Matthew Stafford's going to need, especially in the last couple of years here with the wide receiver turnover on the Lions and how pass happy they tend to be. I think TJ Hawkinson is the perfect blend of block and pass. And I'd be interested to see what Stafford can do with him. Great pick for sure. It'll be interesting to see how he works out. Not many tight ends taken in the top 10 of the NFL draft before uh, the Lions seem to have made a, uh, made a, a name for themselves because of it. But I, I like to pick for sure. Great tight end out of Iowa. Uh, so, so we will definitely see what happens, but definitely uh, good value there for sure, I think, at least. But uh, we, will, we will see mm-hmm. what happens. Um, okay, we're going we're gonna to switch. I got another question for you, Matthew, going outside of the first round. Give me your favorite pick outside of round number one. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to double dip here again. I got two. Uh, one, because I feel like this player obviously should have been taken in the uh, in the first round, and the other one is somebody who was not expected to, but I still think is really great value. So, first of all, uh, best pick, I think, uh, let's go round two, Jawan Taylor to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And the reason why I think this pick is so great is that they sat there in the first round, they had Josh Allen fall to them at seven, and then in the second round, they had Jawan Taylor still sitting there on the board. And despite the fact that a lot of mock drafts and a lot of analysts had him plugged to the Jaguars at seven, to be able to sit there and then take him in the second round, especially in an area of such need on the Jaguars, which is right tackle, I think he's going to be a great fit for them. And the other thing I would say about Jawan Taylor is his play style is going to mesh really well. Because the Jaguars are a very run-heavy squad. And you look at Juwan, and I don't know, I, I consider him a little bit of a mauler out there. So I, I think he's going to work really well. And I'm kind of excited to see what they can do with him, uh, you know, kind of lead blocking for those Jaguar backs. The other uh, pick I just want to point out here in the later rounds was I am a, and I regret to say this, but I'm a big fan of the New England Patriots. Uh, third-round selection, Chase Winovich out of Michigan, because I think he's going to be an absolutely great pass rusher. Um, There's a lot of questioning about his size, but again, we've seen guys in this NFL come in, a Ben, with uh, a little bit undersized and make a significant impact. I'm looking right at Brandon Graham and guys like that. So to me, Chase Winovich is going to come into – a New England defense, he's very versatile, and I feel like you're going to see all kinds of blitz packages as soon as Belichick gets to work with him. Winovich is definitely a, a Belichick player for sure. Plays the game uh, with his head a lot. Very, very smart player. Uh, gritty, tough, so I think he fits very, very well in New England. I, I really like that a lot. Going back to, excuse me, Jawan Taylor, I, I think that's great value. Any Anytime you can get a player who a lot of people had uh, you you linked with in a certain round. Anytime you can get them in the round after that, I, I think that that's incredible. So so Jawan Taylor to Jacksonville, definitely great value there. Uh, you get him for a lot cheaper as well as a second round pick, which is which is even better. So so I, I like those two picks. Uh, I'm actually going to go a little later in the second round, pick number 46 to the Cleveland Browns, Greedy Williams out of LSU, the quarterback. Yeah. Really like this selection. Uh, Cleveland ended up trading to uh, to get him, 
And Greedy Williams, yes, he's had some tackling issues throughout his time at LSU, but he is an absolute ball hawk, great on-ball defender. And I, I really like the way he plays football, has, has wreaked havoc over my uh, Alabama Crimson Tide in the past. So I, I really like this pick. I think it's great value. I think Greedy definitely could have been a, a first-round pick for sure. So anytime you can get him near the 50s, I, I think that that's great value. And I, I really like the selection from the Browns. The Browns are starting to grow sort of this sneaky little defense. Yeah, they're starting to get some, uh, some nice playmakers. Uh, really like the Mac Wilson pick as well, the Alabama linebacker. Smart player, uh, great leader. So they're starting to grow a uh, defense a little bit. And I, I thought they had a really strong draft considering – uh, what they needed. I, th- I think they got a lot of uh, important pieces. If you look at that that roster now, they've got a great defensive line and, and were able to add some some secondary help and, and in the linebacking position. So I really like uh, the picks for the Cleveland Browns there. Yeah, for sure. I got to ask you though, uh, Ben, do you think it's just the tackling that got greed to drop so much? Because, you know, you look at the second round here and I think there was one, two, three, four, five, five cornerbacks plus one in the first. So count that six cornerbacks taken before greedy. Is there something that we're missing here or was it literally just some conversations about the hands? Yeah. You know what? It's an interesting one. And I, I, I'm not really sure why he fell. I think the tackling is, is definitely an issue. I haven't seen any, any off field issues from greedy. Um, you know, maybe there's something that I missed. And I know some people thought that he was a little too too aggressive in, in the way that he played at LSU. Uh, didn't quite – got beat a couple times deep, so maybe there's something there. But I, I think you can uh, – anyone who loves football as much as Greedy Williams does, I want him on my team. And I, I don't really know why he fell. I, I think that it's, it's a great value pick, and I, I really like watching him play football. Two-time first all first team all SEC, so I, I I don't really know what's there. Yep, sounds good to me. Love the pick. Love the pick. Uh, okay, this is my last question for you, Matt. Uh, we're gonna go back to the uh, the negative. Give me your worst pick in the draft. I know you and I probably have the same one, but we got to talk about it. Give me your worst <laughs> pick. Yeah, so, I mean, I have, yeah, I, I knew this. We we're going to eventually come to this. It's just, uh, I have so many thoughts about this pick. I, I'm assuming you're talking about Daniel Jones at six, right? None other than Daniel Jones at six. That That's really, really bad. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, it's, yeah. it's one of those picks where, where you can't really figure out what's going on other than the fact that you just got absolutely swindled really. And I think, I think Gettleman might've even like gotten talked into this pick by, by other teams, which is, which is wild. Um, so, so the Daniel Jones pick is, is okay. And it, it's fine. Um, not at six though. If Daniel Jones is your guy, there's absolutely no reason to take him this high. And then, then of all things, it, it wouldn't have been so bad if Josh Allen was not still on the board to a yeah. Giants team that needs so much defensive help. So it was just a calamity of errors, in my opinion. And, and Daniel Jones, 
I I think would have been there at 17 with the Giants sec- second pick of the first round. Uh, Gettleman said that he knew for a fact that there were two teams that were picking that that would have picked him before 17. Uh, so I saw that to be the Broncos who were picking at 10 ended up trading down. And then the other one was who, who, who I'm, I'm trying to remember who the other one was. I, I was it Washington. I don't think it was Washington. It, it was, it was someone else. Uh, okay. But essentially both there, there were sources very, very close to both teams uh, that confirmed that no, like this, this was nowhere near happening. There was at no point where they going to take Daniel Jones. Um, so it makes it even that much more embarrassing for, uh, for Gettleman. It sounds like he was sort of swindled by, by some other general managers into taking Jones way too early. Again, I don't have an issue with it. If Jones is your guy, not at six and not with Josh Allen still on the board. So it, yeah. it just didn't make, didn't make a lot of sense to me. And and I don't think Giants fans are very happy about it uh, about it at all. Well, I don't know if you've seen any of these videos going around of Giants fans reacting to the peck, but it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, something There's else. Even, yeah, it's just so funny. And to me, honestly, it's not even the peck that makes me so upset. It's Gettleman's reasoning for the peck. Like you said, A, that he apparently thought that two other teams are going to pick him. But then the second comment that he made, which was the fact that he saw him, and I quote, do one drive in the senior bowl, and he knew right away. And I'm sitting here going, okay, you're going to go and pick your franchise quarterback based off of a single drive that you see. What exactly are you doing? Like, what kind of a general manager are you? And to me, it's, you know, I just see problems with Gettleman all over the place. We start pointing fingers at the Daniel Jones pick, which, like you said, it's too high. It doesn't make a lot of sense. His reasoning's not there. Then we go to the pick at 17, Dexter Lawrence, who, again, is a very good player. But the problem that you look at the Giants is they have depth down the middle. They have no pass rush, and he goes and says, hey, let's just take another defensive tackle. And to make matters worse, Ben, this was the pick they got as part of the Odell Beckham package. So you're telling me that you just traded Odell Beckham, one of the best receivers in the league, for a questionable Jabril Peppers, a 300-pound defensive tackle, and a third-round pick that turns into a potential pass rusher I don't know. It just looks like a complete mess to me. Uh, so I did just look it up, and it was Washington that uh, was the other team besides Denver that, that Gettleman had convinced himself was going to take a quarterback. Uh, Denver, we know, has been in love with with Drew Locke for, for a very, very long time, and they ended up getting him. So, But let, let, let's, let's state the fact that they did not have to pick Drew Locke in the first round in order to get him. They got him in the second round. So let's just throw that one out there for all these people who are like, oh, well, Daniel Jones is is first-round quarterback. Let's take him at six. Definitely not. If Drew Locke can wait until the second round, so can Daniel Jones. And the Broncos did it right, waited on their guy, and then uh, traded up when they needed to get him. 
And then the the Washington Redskins, they had always been in love with Haskins from from everything that I that I had heard. They were even thinking about trading up to get him. So I don't know where Gettleman was getting this. Daniel Jones was definitely going to be taking information from Dexter Lawrence. Good player. Uh, not at 17, I don't think. I think that that was that was a reach again and, and didn't address a position that they needed help with like Josh Allen would have. But. Besides the point, uh, yeah, I, I just thought they had an absolute calamity of a draft again. Uh, so that's those are all the questions I got for you, Watson. Is is there anything else you want to uh, want to talk about in regards to the draft? Yeah, yeah. Let's flip it on the on its head here because you just said you know the Giants had such a calamity of a draft. If you're looking at a team's overall draft selections. Is there any particular team that jumps out to you as having just a great general altogether draft? Uh, Washington, for me. I, I know we, we talked about it uh, a little bit before, but getting Haskins and then getting Sweat, really, really like the, uh, the selections. Lots of upside there for sure. There's definitely some risk, but when you're picking 17 or 15th and then, then later in the in the first round, again, you want to take risks on high, high upside players. And I think Washington did that well. I really like Pittsburgh moving up to, uh, to take Devin Bush. I thought that that was, you know, a player that, that was going to fall. I didn't mind him getting taken in the top 10 and, and Pittsburgh went up to get their guy. I think they had some late round picks that, that were solid as well. Uh, I think that's a team that is going to have an interesting season this year especially with all the, the departures this offseason. And finally, I, I really like what my, my Dolphins did, to be honest. I, I thought we drafted well, uh, getting Wilkins and then trading for Josh Rosen for, for pennies on the dollar. So I, I really like those three teams. Yeah, for sure. A couple other teams I'm just going to throw your way. I, I was a big fan of what the Baltimore Ravens did. Because, first of all, they went into the first round. Everyone kind of had them mocked to Mar- uh, Marquise Hollywood Brown. They then proceeded to drop three picks, accumulate more draft capital, and still pick the guy. So I thought that was pretty cool. Also, the fact that they got him and third-round pick Miles Boykin out of Notre Dame. Um, I just like that they're not leaving Lamar Jackson out to dry this year. They're actually making a concerted effort to get him some playmaker, playmakers on the offensive side of the ball. And then in the fourth round, they also picked up an additional running back and an offensive lineman. So I like what Baltimore is doing, and I feel like they're at least giving Lamar Jackson a fighting chance this year instead of just running the ball 60 times a game. Also a huge fan of the Buffalo draft, even beyond Ed Oliver, uh, going out to get Cody Ford in the second round. I know you were talking about him earlier. You love him, offensive tackle, potentially way better than that uh, that pick over there at 23, Titus Howard. And another pick for them was uh, in the third round. They uh, got a da- tight end named Dawson Knox out of Ole Miss who did not have a ton of catches at the college level but has a lot of really great physical traits that you're looking for and has a really high ceiling. So... I was a big fan of the uh, big fan of the Buffalo draft as well. There, some great picks for sure. I I, I agree with everything you said. Draft time is always a uh, always a great time. Uh, love doing the analysis afterwards, but as I said before, we will truly never know 
uh, how the draft really turned out until all these guys step on, on an NFL field and, and we see what they're all about. But uh, Watson, this is, uh, this is all the time we have. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It has been great catching up. Uh, it's been awesome to follow your content so far. If you guys have not checked it out yet, uh, make sure you check out hottakesnetwork.com for all of Matthew's great uh, blogs. He, he threw up a six-part series uh, pre-draft, sort of uh, talking about some great players and uh, some, some picks that he, he thought would happen and some players that he liked. Uh, Matthew, I want to thank you for coming on the pod once again. Uh, any last comments? No, other than thanks for having me on, Betty. I had a great time. And I'm looking forward to all the other great content that we're going to put out here on HTM. Well, thanks a lot, Matt, for, uh, for joining this week. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode of Hot Takes Only, presented by the Hot Takes Network.